0: You are listening to Podco, making government work for us. Now, here are your hosts, Laura Lee Oates, Luke Ashworth,
1: and Stephen Tomlin.
2: Hello listeners, I'm Luke Ashworth.
3: I'm Laura Lee Oates.
1: And I'm Stephen
2: Tomlin. And this is Podco, making government work for us. For the next hour, we'll be taking a deeper dive into politics and current affairs with the help of our guests. Our theme today is food politics and food insecurity. Are we short of food? Or uh, are we short on equal access to food? What is the nature of the food industry and how does it work? What is the future for access to food on a warming planet? What do you think? If you want to keep up to date or on what we're doing, you can follow the show on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at podco1, like our Facebook page at podcochmr, and our email address is podcochmr at gmail.com. We want to hear your feedback. This show is all about making government work for us.
3: We're here in St. John's, Newfoundland. We have a great 10th episode lined up for you today. In just a few moments, we're going to speak with Dr. Sarah Martin. Sarah is an uh, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science here at Memorial, specializing in the political economy of food. Uh, Prior to that, she has worked in the food industry and everything from restaurants to logging camps. But before we get to those conversations, we have our weekly news roundup.
1: Nothing happening. I was going to say the (laughs) same thing. (laughs) International Women's Day, the struggle continues. We haven't gained very much, and we're not really moving as fast forward as we think. And Lori knows because she has been very active in terms of getting out some very good ideas, but being attacked for doing so.
3: Uh, Yes, so the the day before uh, International Women's Day Saturday, I had an article published um by our national broadcaster and uh, it was on the the need to address the green economy and climate change and wow man i can only imagine what 16 <laughs> year old greta Thunberg is going through uh you know the, the attacks were kind of very personal about like kind of my looks and people who you know said they knew me and i've never met them um my clothes my makeup um So, yeah, still a ways to go, but I did ha- have some good things happen on International Women's Day. Um, Dr. Fury, uh, Dr. Andrew Fury, who's a candidate for the leadership, uh, met with some feminists, including myself, and we had some great discussions about Gender-Based Analysis Plus, um, the need to fund daycare, um, gender-based violence. He's actually quite knowledgeable on gender-based violence, I found out, because he, um, 10% of his clientele is an orthopedic surgeon, he said, are cases that come to him because of gender-based violence. And we talked about getting women on the ballots. So, so that was a really positive development. Like, I kind of love that the, the first policy issue, uh, he embraced has been gender. And I was at Government House for the Empowering Women's Sharing Circle, we call this, with um, the Lieutenant Governor Judy Foote and, and some more great discussions about things like gender-based analysis and, and getting more gender-based analysis plus done in government.
1: Nice to see that we're having an opportunity to talk about gender issues and problems, but we don't need to do it just on one day. We need to do it every day uh, <laughs> because uh, it, it's, it's such a significant uh, you know, issue and problem And we need to understand and recognize the bias which exists and some of the constraints which prevent us from doing that.
3: And the great thing was we talked about it as institutional change in government and training the public service on gender-based analysis plus and, and, you know, making it possible for the kind of the minister of status of women to be able to send cabinet papers back if um, they don't have good gender-based analysis plus. Uh, and the, the plus standing for intersectionalism and looking at what does this mean for indigenous women, what does it mean for disabled women, what does it mean for working-class women or immigrant women, um, women who, you know, English isn't their first language. Uh, so, so I'm really kind of loving the conversation that's emerging around gender policy right now.
1: And gender needs to be part of every decision, needs to be part of the calculation and the evaluation.
3: And that takes us nicely, I think, into the premier's leadership race,
1: which is actually focused on ideas and public policy, <laughs> <laughs> or at least the two candidates are kicking it off as a focus on on ideas and policy, and and that's that's a good thing.
2: Yeah, no, I agree, and it, it's uh, something that, that concerned me. I mean, it, maybe this is uh, in that sense we're starting with some of the good news stories uh, here. Is it has now turned towards policy, even to
1: discussions about uh, cuts at Mun, which is interesting. And Andrew of course, is uh, somebody who was coming into the game with uh, a background in medicine and and a focus on looking at at health and and problems associated with with health, but, but other issues as well. And John Abbott, who's a, a former uh, deputy uh, minister and has been involved in uh, mental health and, and the rest of it, mm-hmm. is also focusing to a certain extent on health, but other issues as well, including the idea of memorial cuts.
3: <laughs> no, no. He's talking about uh, raising the tuition freeze.
1: That's right. Yeah. So
3: he's, so he's he's willing to let money have money. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> he, he, he,
3: he recognizes <laughs> <laughs> you can't cut on both ends.
1: <laughs> he's embracing some of the things Laurie has been saying and pushing on on. on on, on yes. Twitter as well. Now,
3: yeah. he shared my climate change article, and he says yeah. he's he's interested in building a platform based on those kinds of ideas. So he's interested in addressing climate change. He's interested in addressing green economy. There was lots of stuff in there about Memorial being part of the service economy. So, yeah, I think we're off to a good policy start.
1: <laughs> wow. Good news. <laughs> it's not status quo, status quo. We actually are having discussions and understanding that we are kind of in a point of, of crises and all, you know, a number of uh, policy failures and there's a, there's a, you know, an effort, at least a desire to begin to address some of these issues.
3: And coronavirus.
1: Uh-huh. Aha.
3: <laughs> and, Absolutely. you know, the only thing I can think of to say about that is, like, God, isn't Trump just terrible?
1: <laughs> it's horrific. I mean, again, you, you can play politics uh, in, when things are normal, but I think it's becoming very, very difficult for the president, at, you know, because he's not doing a very effective job in terms of managing or even discussing some of the, the, the challenges associated with this, with this pandemic yeah well i think the, this is i think the issue that that
2: we face with epidemics as well uh, historically epidemics don't bring down societies they don't bring down civilizations they're they're fairly resilient even you know with sort of the black death uh, you saw a certain resilience of 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 a society even where you have something like one third of the population here we're talking about much less but i think what is important about the effect of academic uh, epidemics is that epidemics are uh, if a society, like an individual, has an underlying condition, an epidemic will show that through, will, will uh, accentuate it. We're seeing that with kind of the Trump administration. Will it survive having to do with the coronavirus? We're seeing it with the weaknesses of our fiscal situation in the province, uh, with the, um, the plunging uh, oil, uh, which is not just about, we can talk about that later, not just about the coronavirus. And we're seeing it with the Continuing weaknesses
1: and fizzes in our uh, global financial system. Knowledge matters, public policy capacity matters, Absolutely. And, and, and again, the, the weakening, the, the kind of the taking away of some of these essential resources, the demonization of experts, and so forth. Uh, are really uh, front and center in terms of how we are not responding to some of these these issues and problems, Absolutely. and it's being reflected in terms of lack of trust, but also reflect in terms of the markets and other things that are that are responding to this lack of uh, coherent uh, response.
3: And you know, we've got to remember too, we've got an aging population here, um, you know, and th- that, and we've got really poor health outcomes. So I feel like um, it's going to expose our weaknesses and our problems. Like we can't ignore. That it's really bad Here right now You know We're probably going to lose 800 million dollars From our budget This year Depending on what uh, Exchange rates are Which is like the worst possible thing that could have happened.
1: I worked on a pandemic team where we were looking at the problems. We looked at other provinces in Canada, and there's critical gaps. And, and you do have to look at the, the population and some of the challenges associated with the Newfoundland Labrador population, which, which is aging and, and, and the rest of it. And we'll have fewer resources in order to do that. Yeah, and uh, let's
2: not forget as well, I mean, it's, it's very easy to assume that the, uh, the, the downturn in, in oil prices is, is, is a blip. Uh, but we've also got the, uh, the the Saudi decision, and I think it's important to point out as well is that uh, is the um, is the supplies the the stores that Aramco has that uh, it's releasing its its stores. Uh, they can pump oil out into the global economy uh, uh, at a price. Uh, which is uh, way lower than we can produce it here in Canada and, and here in the province. And uh, linking this to uh, issues around decarbonisation, about fin- um, uh, finance pulling out of uh, fossil fuels, uh, this is not a kind of a blip caused by a virus. This is going to be a long-term trend. There may be, there may be the price may go up in, in the future, but the long-term trend for oil is not good uh, so we're looking at something in this province akin, I think, to uh, the fisheries.
3: You basically said that our oil is uneconomic to recover now, right? Like once it drops below $45 a barrel, it's uneconomic to recover.
2: Without, uh, without ec- more government subsidies. I mean, it's already quite heavily subsidized, but uh, with with heavy government. And this comes back to Steve's point, of course, of, about um, uh, about this being about political decisions.
1: And what we're learning is that we require policy learning as well as social learning And that that we can't have people making decisions behind closed doors because there are so many people within Newfoundland and Labrador who do understand what's going on in many other parts of the world. That needs to be part of the conversation. We need to engage, we need to contest in order to understand and recognize that uh, decision making is complex, but we require a kind of a group of people working together in order to kind of figure out what is taking place, anticipating when, when changes are going to occur, recognizing volatility is kind of part of how decisions are made, and we are better prepared if we all work together in terms of bringing these voices together.
3: And if we're going to subsidize an industry, let's subsidize an industry of the future instead of one that is in decline. And that kind of takes us to Cutset Memorial. And w- <laughs> we've had a, a little bit of drama around that in the political science department of late.
1: Yeah, I have to declare an interest here. <laughs> I have a bias, but I think it's a very clear bias. But I, th- I think it's a really bad thing to cut. The engine to cut the kind of the the motor that is significant in terms of knowledge, uh, you know, creation and construction and bringing communities together. It's in a knowledge service based economy. It doesn't make a lot of sense to cut the engine, which is required in order to for to survive and to prosper within that that new that new economic reality.
3: So yeah, and we sh- should make clear our, the department had resigned because he didn't want to make the cuts that the university wanted him to make, uh, he, and most of those were around um, per course instruction which makes absolutely no sense. Per-course instructors pay for themselves, right? They bring in enough intuition to cover their own salary, which, you know, again, it's just being penny-wise and pound-foolish. Um, but also, Russell tweeted that really excellent article, um, Education Economic Review, which talked about the benefits of having a university in your jurisdiction. And it, you know, it was a study that looked at like 15,000 universities in uh, 1,500 regions, 72 countries. And what it found is that areas is what universities always have higher GDP? They have higher human capital. They have higher innovation. Um, they have higher um, dialogue on democracy and better democratic outcomes.
1: It's, it's no surprise New England and California has the, <laughs> the most innovative economies is because they have these very strong <laughs> university traditions. I mean, those institutions are pivotal, and Newfoundland and Labrador benefits a great deal by, from having uh, you know Memorial University and they. they they're really uh, it's, it's counterproductive to, re- to reduce the resources because that's really, uh, that is the future.
3: And it's not just the jobs that it creates, but, but, you know, the students that it brings here to live and the scholars that it brings here to live. And, you know, the people who want to be educated and who, you know, who already have degrees and want to do graduate degrees who come here to live. Like that contributes significantly to the fabric of our society. A university is one of the best ways to get young people to come here and live. And, you know, we're cutting that resource. And they, you know, I mean, I did my PhD in the UK. I left more money in the UK than I ever took out of the UK. Right. Like, these are contributing factors.
1: And we need to, you know, respond to what's happening in Russia, what's happening in, in the Middle East. And that is the result of working together to produce knowledge, resources, and coalitions. That's a very critical kind of piece in terms of our democracy.
3: Okay, so I think that's enough for today. <laughs> um, and uh, when we return, we'll be joined by our first guest, uh, Dr. Sarah Martin, and we'll be talking about the politics of food. Making
1: government work for us.
0: Podco. We'll be right back.
2: This is the Social Media News. I'm your weird co-worker. You won't hear this anywhere else, but the Canadian government has made contact with aliens. And they are covering it up because the aliens aren't politically correct enough. No respect for the taxpayers.
3: Social media isn't journalism. So why does our government give billions to social networks while Canadian newsrooms die out? Visit friends.ca to learn
0: more. Authorized by Friends of Canadian Broadcasting.
2: You're tuned to 93.5 CHMR-FM Broadcasting live from the campus of Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland
1: Now back to Podco,
0: making government work for us with Lori Leos. Luke Ashworth and Stephen Tomlin.
3: And now it's a pleasure to introduce our next guest, Dr. Sarah Martin, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science. She specializes in global political economy of food and agriculture, and her research explores questions about governance of food and agriculture at the local and global scale. She has a a PhD from the University of Waterloo in global governance. She's worked as a cook, chef, and meat cutter in a variety of settings from institutional cafeterias to high-end restaurants and remote logging camps. Uh, This has led to an interest in how food politics is practiced in the everyday and how the everyday links to the global political economy. She's currently researching the political economy of animal feed in the context of global agri-food politics and the dynamics of finance and the financial actors in relation to environmental politics. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much.
2: Hi there, Sarah. We, uh, we usually always begin with a, uh, a what seems like a softball question, but actually people often find the most difficult one, which is the more sort of general overarching question. How did your work in the diverse parts of the food industry lead to your interest in the political economy of food?
0: Uh, well, it still informs what I do today. Um, as Laurie introduced, um, <clears throat> uh, I practiced food for a long, long time in a variety of settings. And through my various careers in food service, um, I came to understand many of the challenges and barriers that are a part of the food system. Uh, so, for example, when I worked at high-end restaurants, I would deal directly with fishers or farmers uh, and meet them at the back door of a restaurant, for example, and discuss their latest delivery, um, their problems of fishing, the challenges they faced, um, but then the opportunities when a farmer brought in a new green that we had uh, were just being introduced and in so that we could introduce to our patrons. That kind of direct dynamic with uh, what might be called feeders um, or fishers or growers really uh, shaped how I thought about food systems and that direct connection. Uh, then I moved to a small fishing village that was quite remote and saw, uh, resource economies from a very intimate place. Uh, because it was so remote, food, ca- uh, food gathering, uh, fishing, food preparation was highly valued, uh, and a very intimate part of community life that brought us together. And from there, uh, my partner and I moved to uh, a large Ontario city where I started to work in university food service. Um, and after living in this remote village for 10 years and seeing the intimacy of life, I started to work at a university uh, institutional food service. Um, and there I was shocked by the lack of intimacy of food service, the what Jennifer Clapp would call the distance between me and the food providers or the feeders. Uh, and I was in direct contact with what we might call the eaters uh, of the food service at this university. And what that meant was most of my day as a cook was spent putting uh, white boxes into freezers, taking white boxes out of freezers, defrosting that food, heating that food up, and then serving students. And it was a remarkably alienating experience for me as someone who was really concerned about food and really loved food. Um, The story that I often tell is about preparing baked potatoes. So one day, baked potatoes was on the menu, so I took out a 50-pound case of potatoes and started to wash them. And as you know, cooking baked potatoes is pretty straightforward. You wash the potatoes. If you get fancy, you might put a little bit of oil on them. Uh, and then you bake them. That's it. Uh, my sous chef came around and stopped me and, and brought out one of those plain white boxes from the freezer. And what we had was a box of frozen baked potatoes which to me just seemed crazy. So someone had taken those potatoes from the field, harvested them, driven them to a processing factory where they were washed and baked and then frozen. And then they were put on another truck and shipped to this university food service. And at that point, I understood just the craziness of this system. Um, so thinking about supply chains and the intimacy of the back door of the high-end restaurant, the intimacy of potlucks in this remote fishing village, and then this kind of alienating um work that I was doing for this University Food Service. And I pe- also became really concerned, not only because of my own self-interest, but the workers I worked beside, who had worked in this University Food Service for sometimes 20 or 30 years. And they would talk about how they used to cook dinner. Yeah. Uh, so there used to be six cooks who would cook for 800 um, people in this residence. Whereas I worked with someone who is part-time, to put out food for about 800 people. And I could do that because of this prepared food uh, that was basically just heat and serve. And so what I came to understand was beyond the intimacy of cooking, there was this huge network or structure of supply chains and politics behind all the different food preparations that I had experienced, from remote logging camps to this remote fishing village to this uh, sort of industrialized institutional food service that I was doing. And also understood sort of the de-skilling that happened uh, once we went into this sort of industrialized, frozen, heat-and-serve food. So I really became interested in these varied political economic structures that facilitated um, me thinking about What are the politics behind this? What were the opportunities? What were the barriers? What are the challenges of this uh, dynamic global uh, political economic food system?
3: In your recent work, you've become interested in how food production influences the environment. Um, and there's been much talk recently about how high meat and dairy diets contribute to global heating. Last year, we had the 11,000 scientists sign off on the idea that um, we need to move to plant-based diets. Uh, would a shift to a high plant-based diet help fight climate change?
0: Uh oh, this is a great question, uh and quite timely, because my colleague Ryan Kathrosine, who's at University of Ottawa, and I have a book coming out next month uh with McGill Queen's University Press uh called Green Meat Question mark, Sustaining Eaters, Animals, and the Planet, where we look at the question of meat consumption uh because exactly of what you suggest is that this is uh meat environment problem is getting more and more attention. Um, and what we talk about in this book, and we have a number of different authors who, from everything from Tony Weiss, who suggests that um, the industrial food system is, uh, the industrial food system, especially around meat production, is remarkably violent, especially towards animals. And he talks about literally the billions of animals that are killed every year for our consumption. And so we have an essay from him, but we also have an essay from a young scholar at Concordia who talks about her intimate experience in Italy with eating a meat-based diet and what that meant for how she thinks about food. Um, And so our primary argument in the book is that we need to look at the various forms and scales of agriculture in order to really look at this Uh, so-called meat environment problem. And how we sort of, um, how we framed it is that there's three sort of dynamics going on right now. Uh, There's this idea of modernizing meat, is Mm -hmm. that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with meat production, but it just needs to be more efficient and use resources more efficiently. Um, A second sort of pathway is this idea of replacing meat, and that's the idea of going to a plant-based model um, and so we're also thinking about with replacing meat what are we replacing meat with if we are replacing meat with highly processed soy from brazil where we know that there's uh, environmental challenges around um, industrial soy production is that actually really changing um, the scales and the kinds of forms of uh, let's say protein for lack of a better word um, this replacing meat, um, we have to really look at how, uh, what exactly are we replacing meat with? Um, so for example, if we look at something like the Impossible Burger or some of these other uh, what are called analog meats, I think we also have to look at, some of my research has looked at a lot of the more popular uh analog meats are actually being invested in and supported by for example tyson or supported by maple leaf uh large meat producing corporations and they actually aren't changing their underlying business model they're just uh diversifying it a little bit so i think we have to look very carefully um it's more it's quite complicated um a final Sort of pathway. So there's modernizing meat pathway. There's the replacing meat pathway that we talk about in the book, and then there's the restoring meat pathway, which is regenerative agriculture, which actually uh, places animals at the center, but at a very small scale way. Uh, and so we basically argue that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with consuming meat itself, but we have to look very carefully at where that meat comes from who's producing it, uh, who's losing from producing that meat, and who's benefiting from producing that meat. And that if we think about regenerative agriculture uh, that includes animals, um, that that's a, uh, a possibility that we need to think about, that it's just more complicated than saying no meat or only meat. And so we're trying to think about the various forms and scales of agriculture Um, and supporting something that is environmentally um, less harmful, maybe, I should say.
1: So the coronavirus, I suspect, is going to uh, launch a lot more interest in terms of meat production and and, and what we eat. So you also studied the link between the financial sector and agriculture. How does this relationship affect the kinds of foods we serve at our dinner tables?
0: Yeah, so I think um, I just want to talk, uh, touch on the coronavirus, because I think that's really important. Um, a lot of these epidemics are um, connected to, although the coronavirus isn't necessarily, it's not exactly clear, but a lot of the serious uh, diseases that have come recently, for example, SARS, have come out of uh, interaction between industrial agriculture and humans. Mm. And so we have to think carefully about these sorts of dyna- dynamics. Um, industrial agriculture produces a lot of problems, and certainly environmental problems. So connecting that to your question about what's the role of finance in our food system? What's the role of financial actors in our food system? Um, I've looked at something called the financialization of agriculture. And what this is, is that financial actors are increasingly involved in agricultural production and shaping agricultural production and food systems. And so what this means is, in the past, the state has constrained financial actors in the agricultural sector because of the danger of speculation. So what that means is are financial actors actually shaping agriculture or is agriculture something special that we need to protect from speculation? And in the past, especially in the early 20th century, it was thought that speculation in something so fundamental as food should be constrained, whereas over the last couple of decades, we've had light-touch regulation, especially in the financial s- sector. So what this means is... Financial actors at various scales, from institutional uh, actors, in, in, institutional investors like the Canadian um, pension plan, have become increasingly investing in things like farmland, increasingly investing in things like agricultural commodities. And so, what this means is that rather than finance being an adjunct to agriculture, increasingly agriculture is being shaped by financial actors, who are are increasingly shaped by financial actors, full stop. One way to think about this, if we think about the environment, and we think about agriculture, and we think about financial uh, actors, one way to think about this is to frame it in time. If we think about the environment and environmental degradation, that happens over a long period of time. If we think about agricultural production, at minimum, there is a growing season and a harvest season. And to have healthy harvests, we need to have a healthy environment that needs to be protected over decades. Whereas financial actors are really interested in the quarterly profits of companies um, or the quarterly cost of commodities. And so I was very interested when you were talking about oil prices because um, my concern is that generally Oh, I should, my concern, so this is a little sidebar. <laughs> my concern with oil is that commodity prices generally move at the same, uh, they usually go up together and they usually go down together. So if oil prices are going down, it may mean that other commodities such as corn and soy and agricultural pr- uh, prices might be declining as well. And we would be concerned for the producers. Uh, losing income in that And so those kinds of swings with commodities benefit financial actors whereas they um, the losers in these radical swings and commodity prices the producers are losers in this in this swing in this particular swing. And so what this means is that or one way to think about this is when the prices are volatile, financial actors win no matter if the price goes up, Or the price goes down. They benefit from the volatility because they speculate on it. Whereas we know if the price on food goes up sharply, we lose as consumers or eaters. And if the price goes down, the feeders actually lose or the producers lose. But the financial actors are always winning in those, in both those cases because their time they win basically day-to-day or hour-to-hour or minute-to-minute because of the, the way the markets uh, actually operate. So I'm interested in that dynamic of if we want to protect the environment, if we want to protect the food system, that we have to think long term. But the financial actor's interest is very short term, which goes against any kind of sustainable future.
2: Sarah, you've written about uh, food sovereignty. Uh, what does this mean, uh, and how might the concept help us to improve uh, the food? In- how the food industry works?
0: Yeah, so uh, food sovereignty is really uh, interesting topic. So often we hear about food security, which is sort of an administrative term that governments primarily use. Whereas food sovereignty emu- uh, emerged uh, in the 1990s, primarily as a reaction to the trade liberalization of food. And it emerged out of social movements, particularly peasant movements. Primarily, the leadership came from the global south. Uh, and what this meant was, as the WTO included agriculture in trade liberalization, producers or feeders from around the world saw that they were having the same problems, that their national governments were, were not protecting agricultural policies that protected them. The due to trade liberalization and uh, sort of neoliberal policies. And so what this meant was peasants and fishers and pastoralists around the world were all confronted with the same neoliberal policies of trade liberalization. So the NFU in Canada emerged in the 1990s as part of this movement, as well as uh, actors around the world. So what does food sovereignty mean? In the shorthand, it would mean sort of the dem- democratization of food and that it places the power of determining food policy within the hands of the food uh, producers or the feeders. And so it, it emerged from farmers around the globe in the wake of liberalized trade they work to change the food policy um, at the national and local scale. Its aim is to uh, support domestic farming, domestic fishing, pastoralism, to restrict the moves of subsidies and dumping, which uh, erodes a lot of small-scale farmers. And a really important uh, part of this, especially in the wake of International Women's Day, is that women are critical food producers and, for example, they're usually traditionally seed savers as well. And so there's a gendered um, dynamic uh, in a sort of emancipatory way with food sovereignty. So it grew out of international prominence in something called La Via Campesina or the Peasant's Way. So it's an interesting. In Canada, it really has sort of taken off in social movements since about 2010 when the People's Food Policy Project started, where they had meetings across Canada with small food producers and eaters to sort of think about how food sovereignty could be implemented in Canada. And so we can actually trace that the recent liberal food policy really was – it could be argued, and I would argue, that the movement that started in the 1990s started to be articulated in a particular way in the 20, around 2010, really um, pushed the federal government to develop a national food policy. And so it sort of shows the power of social movements to actually change policies, at least in this case in Canada, because before that, Canada never had a uh, synthetic or an overriding food policy, which is really important to think about, especially when we're thinking about food sovereignty and the democratization of the food system.
3: If you were asked to predict the best worst-case <clears throat> scenario for how the global food industry develops over the next few decades, what would they be?
0: So I was really interested to hear your conversation about um, the coronavirus, because I think the food system is also a way to think about inequality um, and the underlying political economic systems, um, as well as the sort of environmental infrastructure that supports a healthy food system. So I think uh, the worst case scenario is that the food system will continue to be a place where we see inequality, financialization, and environmental degradation uh, sort of manifest. But it's also a place where we can see food sovereignty emerging uh, in a way that is that implements uh, equity, uh, for example, gender equity, that produces um, a regenerative agriculture that pushes back against uh, environmental degradation and helps to at least slow climate change. And I think it's also important, even more urgent, as we're thinking about the oil uh, industrial agriculture is dependent on petroleum. And so if we really want to change the food system, one way is to think about it is to move away from our oil dependence. So for example, synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, insecticides are really built around the petroleum, uh, petro- petroleum base. And so what this means is if we implement food sovereignty, if we inter- implement, um, Equity within the food system. If we support workers, if we support uh, feeders, fishers, growers, um, the folks who are developing, uh, who are taking care of our food, then I think we can think about how do we create a healthy food system that is going to regenerate the planet, regenerate workers' rights, regenerate uh, gender equity. Then I think we have a, a huge opportunity here. But it's also a way to think about an inequitable food system is a way to, um, is an, is a, is a indicator of an inequitable political economic system and environmental degradation. So I think those are two ways to sort of think about it. There's a great opportunity, um, but there's, uh, there's great concern too.
2: Thanks so much, Sarah. I mean, it really points out how food is, is still so important and how it sits at the middle of all these questions about industry, finance, gender, inequality. And I think one of the fascinating things there was the role of time, uh, with, uh, thinking in decades, thinking in days, thinking in quarters the different um the different way that different actors are thinking about different times and the, the friction that causes and i suppose the other thing about all of this is that um always a conversation with you about food politics you can never look at your dinner in the same way again mm. uh and i don't think i'm going to be ordering the uh, baked potato <laughs> um, Not in the cafeteria, anyway. Not in the cafeteria. <laughs> 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 anyway, we want to hear from you. How has food politics affected you and your community? You can follow the show on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at podco1. Like our Facebook page, at podcochmr. And our email address is podcochmr at gmail.com.
0: Making government work
2: for
1: us.
0: Podco.
3: We'll be right back. <laughs>
0: If you're a chronic nostalgic who loves the music of Newfoundland and Labrador, tune in to the Newfound Records Radio Hour on CHMR 93.5 FM on Saturdays at noon. Join host Wayne Tucker as he shines a light on the music of the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. So whether you're a sentimental old-timer who's stuck in a vinyl groove, or a newbie eager to hear hard-to-find-roots music of Newfoundland and Labrador, tune in to the Newfound Records Radio Hour on Saturdays at noon Where the unexpected is the norm.
3: Volunteering.
0: It can begin with the simplest of gestures. A gift of time, energy, commitment. Something precious that grows stronger with every hand that touches it. And grows across communities and through the very fabric of our nation. And begins, once again, with the simplest of gestures. To Canada's six and a half million volunteers, thanks. A message from Volunteer Canada, the government of Canada, and this station.
2: Broadcasting to the world via MP3 stream at www.chmr.ca, you're tuned to Mun Radio, 93.5 CHMR-FM, your only music alternative.
0: Now back to To Hotco, making government work for us, with Lori Leos, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin.
3: Welcome back to Podco, making government work for us.
2: Uh, Susan Hawkins was going to be our guest uh, on the second part of the uh, Podco broadcast today. Um, She's the program coordinator at Food First NL, but unfortunately she has uh, come down with an illness and and can't make it. Uh, We were going to talk uh, to her about some important issues that I think flow off what uh, Sarah was talking about just now, uh, food insecurity Um, particularly in the province. Uh, And uh, 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 Suzanne's arguments have been that um, it's poverty, not supply, that is behind uh, insecurity in this province. So it's really about getting food to people. Uh, And she's also done work on how um, it's it's the people who suffer from food insecurity tend to be people in work, and particularly vulnerable are uh, single parents.
3: And there's more single parents now than... There used to be, right? Yes. There's, there's more single people in the world now. There's more people co-parenting.
2: More disparity. And more disparity. More yeah.
3: inequality, as yeah. we discussed recently.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the, we would have also have talked to her. Maybe we'll hopefully have Suzanne uh, maybe on uh, again later, and we can talk about uh, uh, issues such as uh, food insecurity, food banks in the province, problems with uh, uh, food supplies, particularly if we're going to have more states of emergency uh, next one likely to be over the, uh, coronavirus. But perhaps that's not the big news story that we should be talking about. Um, do you two want to talk about da 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 da, Muskrat Falls?
1: Briefly. The report. The, the response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, well, okay.
3: So I'm going to put on my communications hat and talk about the the way they released the report. And they got um, criticism from many of the media in town who, you know, been covering government for years, who didn't, you know, get any kind of technical briefing. They got a half an hour with the the premier and minister of natural resources before the House of Assembly opened, and um, th- they said on reports like this, previously they would have. Um, typically gotten longer technical briefings. Um, so there, there really wasn't much of an opportunity there for them to digest the report before they got access to the premier and the minister. And, you know, that kind of goes back to their whole approach to dealing with the media and kind of not realizing that they're accountable to the public through the media And, um, you know, one of their big problems as an administration is they really haven't been trusted by the media, um, because they don't make themselves available. And when the media doesn't trust you, right? The public senses that, and then the public doesn't trust you.
1: They could have taken full advantage of this. They have an inquiry which is really critical, and it lays out all the challenges and problems in terms of past decision making. Uh, so it really is—it's—it's it's really surprising that they didn't understand or recognize this is a real asset that they could actually go out there and saying. We're all about transformation and change. We've identified where all, all the problems are and now we're, now we're gonna fix it. But they didn't. But uh, the
3: crazy thing is the report fries the other party. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> like, so, why not?
1: <laughs> don't they understand? This is actually an opportunity to, to gain some credit for having an inquiry. Of course, they're press, pressured to do it, uh, but again, it's kind of the same old, same old bad behavior. Uh, they, they don't fully understand and recognize that this could have actually been something really positive for them kind of going forward. Certainly, you know, something that I think the, the people who are now uh, competing for the leadership probably would have preferred them selling this in a way uh, that would actually help them in terms of making them the agents of change or, or, again, creating this impression. They are about fixing some of the problems which we've inherited from the past.
3: Ed Martin showing his usual arrogance, and um, you know he was on the news saying he's really not worried about any criminal charges, and um, how what was that he called it a, a
2: an unsubstantiated <laughs> negative hypothesis? Yes, unsubstantiated <laughs> negative hypothesis, <laughs> which makes absolutely no sense from a philosophy of science point of view. Just want to say hypotheses isn't
1: what he thinks it is. <laughs> I think Ches Crosby is a probably better at He hasn't kind of come out and kind of damned up the party, but he said the evidence is what it is, <laughs> and he accepts the evidence put forward.
3: But how can it be unsubstantiated? They just spent like three-quarters of a year investigating this, and there's eleven hundred pages of documentation, and it's unsubstantiated it's no longer a hypothesis after you've done the research well we? it becomes a it
2: becomes a scientific theory then
1: it <laughs> <laughs> helps to explain how is it they continued to go along this path despite clear evidence that this probably wasn't a good idea. You have this report and then say it's it's biased <laughs> despite the fact that the focus was on having various kind of views and perspectives and the data all assembled, Uh, it is, again, it really is astounding that after all of this, there still isn't on the part of those who kind of put this into play an understanding that this was a bad idea and it was poorly executed.
3: And it's being referred to the police, but the citizenry doesn't really have a whole lot of faith in the police. Um, and we, we were looking at the white collar crime division of the RCMP, and all the, um, kind of feedback on them is that they're under resourced. They take a long time. Um, I mean, it seems like we got a white collar crime problem, right? right? That, um, it's, it's just not being dealt with. But I,
1: th- <laughs> I think the very clear narrative is that public policy matters. Having oversight matters. Mm. And that, you know, what we have to do now is have a real, adult conversation about reform and mm. making sure that we're actually dealing with the issues of the citizens, dealing with the issues of the earth based on evidence, based on oversight, and again, welcoming people contesting ideas. It's 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 good for democracy, but we had again, a report demonstrating that there's this kind of control over knowledge construction and dissemination. There's a lack of engagement, and that's a very bad thing, and that produces yeah. bad outcomes.
2: I, I know what you mean. I mean, this if anything, shows the desperate need for democratic reform. I noticed some people on Twitter were trying to say, this isn't about democratic reform. Uh, this is about something completely different. But actually, no, this is, uh, it really does show up, the, the fizzes, the, the weaknesses uh, in, in, in our political system.
1: Decision-making yeah. is a technical political balancing act. And I think one of the things coming over that report is that we actually more, we need to rely more upon evidence and we need to rely upon oversight. And that requires building those knowledge resources and you know, helping institutions mm-hmm. like MUN in order to ensure that we do uh, have the capacity or the ability to, to contest and to, to come up with better outcomes and, and, uh, yeah, uh, and to have correct. that kind of conversation.
2: And I think, you know, this sort of linking back to what both both you're saying, Stephen, you're saying, Laurie, here on this, is that one thing this province really hasn't done is the hard difficult work of economic development what we've become obsessed with and this is what links muskrat falls with the offshore it links with the older crises uh, like the greenhouses like the railways is that governments have tended to look for a get rich uh, quick scheme they'd rather be digging for buried treasure than actually going out and trying to the difficulty of building a career to probably give a sort of uh, individual analogy. And, you know, the attitude around Muskrat Falls isn't that different from the attitude around the offshore oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are also, in both cases, staring down um, what in the long term is very, very bad news. Old dependencies. Are and old dependencies. Are hard dependencies. Hard dependencies. And we need to, to shift the discussion away from these get-rich-quick schemes. And the... Pr- Two proper economic development. And that means now that's going to be bitty. It's hard graft. It involves uh, um, doing lots of different things at very low levels. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's not easy. Uh, but we need to do it. We need to stop going for these kind of um,
1: these quick uh, fixes. Quick fixes. Yeah. They're not going to work. Well, the they never pr- will. The provincial state, to a certain extent, become the merchants. They control so many aspects of development and and decision-making. Focused on the resources because that's where that's what they own and that's that's what that's they right, manage. Yes.
3: So you, you can talk about Trump, nasty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I,
1: I, I, Mr. Trump, of course, is learning that politics and partisanship and territoriality is really a bad thing and is producing really bad outcomes. Uh, is he? Is he really <laughs> learning that? Well, I hope. I think he is. I mean, he tried, but he continues to make to make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And and again, the the other, I think, the clear message coming out. Uh, in terms of this 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 pandemic and 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 you know all of the the challenges associated with it, is that we actually, as as Luke is always saying, we have the knowledge, we have the tools. We could, we have the instruments. We could have done, we should have been doing the testing. We should, we should have been thinking about quarantines and the rest of it, but we haven't taken full advantage of it.
3: And it's worth noting that they don't have the kind of drive-through testing in the United States that we have in Canada, right? And Trump is treating this like a PR problem, right? He's not treating it as a medical crisis. A foreign disease. And he's, yeah, (laughs) so he's, you know, he's using it as an excuse to close borders. Um, and he's telling lies about it predictably. Um, but, but they are not telling people to avoid going to their doctor's offices and, you know, so it's going to get spread around. And, and we know that if you take precautions, this doesn't peak in the same way. You don't, you know, not as many people get it, not as many people die. And the other concerning thing is they don't have universal health care in the U.S.
2: No, no. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is the, the point about an epidemic, uh, is that epidemics, don't bring down societies. You know, even really awful epidemics don't bring down societies on their own. But what epidemics do reveal, they flush out and show you all the problems your society has, all the fizzes, all the weaknesses. You know, then... In our problems, we haven't even got a case yet. But already, it's exposing our dependence on oil. Uh, it's exposing the inequality in our society. In the United States, it's exposing the fact that it's, um, it has a very expensive... Healthcare system that's not universal. It's exposing its lack of sick leave and protection for it for individuals. You know, it exposed different things in China, and there were there were problems in China as well, particularly over governance there. So that's what an epidemic does. It's kind of like a die test in your society, and it reveals very starkly the problems that are, that are there. The virus
1: itself is not an issue
2: I, but it's yeah. when that virus collides with yeah. uh, with our society we see where our problems are
1: so i think in newfoundland Labrador, with the result of the muskrat falls inquiry and within the united states people have come to recognize and understand we need less politics we need more public policy the building of public policy the building of the institutions in order to improve outcomes and i think that's a you know there is going to be great pressure in the United States in in terms of building, taking advantage. I mean, the Americans have incredible resources Mm -hmm. that that they could use, could employ, but it needs to be managed, and there needs to be political will.
3: But I think Luke is right in the way, you know, it's exposing the weaknesses in our society, because, you know, we haven't reduced the deficit, we haven't paid down the debt, uh, we haven't diversified our economy and gotten off the dependence on oil, and we, you know, haven't protected our institutions. Institutions, and you know, so now eight hundred million dollars lost from our budget is a huge problem.
1: That's it, massive. There are outcomes in terms of not doing the right things. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah,
3: and yeah, I mean, there's been a narrative out there too that there was nothing that could have been done about it, Hmm. right? You know, I've been trying to fight that in a way, and some people don't like what I'm saying, but we've got the, the lowest uh, income tax in Atlantic Canada while we've got the highest incomes. We are not taxing in, um, I guess, unincorporated areas. We're not getting the value out of the Newfoundland Liquor Corporation that we should be. We've got fees that are 25% of what they are in other provinces. So, I mean, in 2015, when this government came in, they had room to move. And I, I think a lot of the problem was that they didn't know how to sell it politically.
1: Whether we have oil and gas dependencies or dependencies on hospitals and doctors to deliver services, these things can be changed and transformed. Um, yeah. Those in positions of power say these things can't change. Uh, well, they have an incentive in terms of saying they can't change, but they actually can.
2: Yeah, I think you know this is all comes down to, and
1: we've discussed this
2: before, the three of us, uh, is we have so much here there's so much good human capital there's so 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 much that's going for us but there's one resource that we severely lack and that's political will and you can even see it in the kind of cynical sort of shrugging off you get of people on on twitter uh uh, who will just say well you know what can we do we can't get rid of our dependence on oil we can't do this we can't do that and you know that's that's our biggest weakness
3: Well, yeah, I think the narrative is out there now. Muskrat Falls ruined everything, and there's nothing we can do about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a bad, bad narrative. And the
3: the further along this goes on this path, the less we can do about it.
2: Absolutely. And this is why we need democratic reform. This is why we need even just talking about democratic reform and imagining different futures is a positive thing. If I
3: was Andrew Fury and John Abbott, I'd be asking for my entry feedback about now.
1: (laughs) 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 Poor guys. Yes, exactly. The the old idea of a politician is we need somebody who's very aggressive. Actually, yeah. what we need is a political will to take away the power from those who are making these decisions in order to engage the experts and, the, and kind of basically opening it up. So we need somebody with a political will to actually understand that we need to rebalance the kind of the relationship between technical and political decision making. We need less partisanship. We need less territoriality. We need more public policy. And so political leaders need to play less attention or focus more attention on policy and, and letting those who do public policy have a, have the capacity of the resource in order to do it uh, and basically just step away and, 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 and over, you know, provide oversight but ultimately, in the end, these decisions should be based on evidence. They should be based on knowledge. They should be based on the tools that we are providing. And academics are not just uh, you know, doing things which are theoretical. Many of the things we produce are actually practical.
3: But it's been great to see some of the public come to our defense when, yeah. <laughs> when word got out about the, the cuts to political yeah. science. And, yeah, yeah I think some people really like the fact that the political science department's been so activist in uh, Czech and government.
1: And none of us personal. It's all about the ideas and it's yeah, all it about the outcomes. The policy. About yeah, yeah, it's about the policy.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, again, just a, a, a positive thing, there is so much talent um, yes. in, in this department. Our we've seen it with the guests that we've brought in here. Um, we our practitioners programs. and scholars.
3: Our people are our best resource That's and we right. invest in everything but our people. Right? Yeah. The same day the cuts were announced to the university, they announced investment in oil valves. Right? So it shows they're still mm. investing in these dying old industries instead of investing in our human capital.
1: These are choices. You can mobilize the interests or you can basically shut them out. We yeah. need to mobilize. Yeah. We need to move on from this old thinking.
2: And of course... We will be discussing this on Monday, will we not?
3: Yeah, we're going to be appearing on On Target St. John's with uh, Linda Swain. Um, We're going to be discussing Muskrat and the Kotset Memorial.
2: Should we call it a day there and and wrap up? Yeah. Yeah, yeah? Okay, well, look, thanks for joining us uh, for this episode of Podco, uh, and um, apologies for the um, not being able to talk to our second guest. But uh, it's, uh, what can you do uh, when, you, uh, when you're when you sick? Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you for listening in to Podco, Making Government Work for Us. And we'll leave you with this quote from the writer and producer, Josh Whedon. Humor keeps us alive. Well, humor and food. Don't forget food. You can go a week without laughing. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.